From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time, and this hour, Ron Elving. In the week in politics, a new photo exhibit brings back memories for women active in the early days of the Black Panther Party. A new novel follows eight translators of a famous author into a force that may soon disappear. And Max Raba on tour with German jazz and swing music from the 20s and 30s, much from Jewish composers before stormtroopers stomped out their melodies. They speak about love and, and personal relationship. The music wants to entertain the people and to make them forget what's outside of the concert hall or the dance hall. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, March 2nd, 2024. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Republicans in Idaho and Missouri are weighing in on the race for the GOP presidential nomination today. Those two states are holding caucuses, and so is Michigan. But some Republicans are crying foul there, as Michigan Public uh, Radio's Rick Pluto reports. Former President Donald Trump will almost certainly win the caucuses, but Republicans here have something else to fight about. There's a bitter division over the removal of the last party chair following an 11-month tenure that was marked by infighting and broken finances. Now her supporters say they're being denied credentials. The new leadership says that's because they ignored registration deadlines. They're playing games, and and we're, we've had enough. We're done. That's Katie Niss, chair of the Grand Traverse County Republican Party. Her congressional district will convene its own caucus to select national convention delegates. There could be others. If their delegates aren't recognized, they could take their fight to the Republican National Committee. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta in Grand Rapids, Michigan. California now where a major snowstorm is pummeling the Sierra Nevada, including Lake Tahoe. Sophia Holm of member station KUNR reports that higher elevations could see as much as 12 feet of snow on snow the ground. Snow are running up and down the streets at regular intervals, pushing snow into driveways as they pass. Chris Lewinsky and his wife, Kathy Ludwig, are experiencing their second winter in Tahoe. He says they're stocked up on food and equipment. We've got a generator, so we're we're set. I mean, it doesn't. It's kind of nice having nowhere to go, and we really can't go anywhere. The local hardware store says they have pretty much sold out of rechargeable lights, batteries, and propane heaters. A blizzard warning through Sunday morning covers a 300-mile stretch from north of Lake Tahoe to south of Yosemite National Park. For NPR News, I'm Sophia Holman Reno. The uh, commander in chief of Ukraine's armed forces, Alexander Nevsky, is signaling that he'll replace some commanders on the Eastern Front, saying after three days of work there, it has become clear why some brigades are managing to hold off Russian attacks while others are not. The BBC's Danny Eberhardt has more. When President Zelensky sacked General Sierski's predecessor less than a month ago, he stressed the importance of his generals really knowing conditions on the front. General Sierski has been at the Eastern Front to try to stabilise it after the loss of Avdiivka and with Russian forces on the offensive. He said he'd changed those commanders whose actions and commands threatened the lives of their subordinates. But he praised some brigades and promised, after listening to frontline units, to provide reserves, ammunition and expertise to back them up. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says three people were killed and eight others were injured today by a Russian drone that crashed into an apartment building in the port city of Odessa. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Steward Healthcare is appointing a new president of the region that includes Massachusetts. Dr. Octavio Diaz started in the role Thursday. He's a Massachusetts native and the former chief medical officer of Steward. Steward said in a statement that Diaz will be meeting with the hospital staff at each of Steward's nine hospitals in Massachusetts. The for-profit hospital system is facing harsh criticism over its financial struggles and its hiding of financial information in the state. On the MBTA this weekend, shuttle buses are replacing trains on the red line between Park Street and JFK UMass. This allows workers to do tunnel inspections. The commuter rail also will be free between JFK UMass and South Station this weekend. Shuttles are replacing commuter rail service between South Station and Framingham today, and part of the Green Line remains closed until Friday. Today, the city of Boston is kicking off a series of clinics for its furriest residents. Pet owners can bring their dogs in for low-cost licenses and dogs and cats for rabies vaccines. Both are mandated for pets by state law. Boston's director of care and control, Alexis Trzinski, says about 85 pets come to each clinic. We enjoy seeing new pet owners with their new pets. We have lots of questions. We enjoy seeing returning pet owners. We often recognize the pets are not their owners, but it's a really great time. Uh, people are really patient and appreciative of the fact that we are able to provide these clinics. The first clinic runs from 10 to 2 at the Animal Rescue League of Boston in the South End. Future clinics will be at locations across the city. Dogs must be leashed. Cats must be in a carrier. In a highly anticipated sign of spring, a South Boston culinary institution opens for the season today, Sullivan's on Castle Island. It's famous for its hot dogs, seafood, and other treats. It opens its doors at 10 this morning. Last night, the Celtics beat the Mavericks 138-110. to Boston's 10-game winning streak is the longest in the NBA this season. Tonight, the Bruins are in New York against the Islanders. In preseason baseball this afternoon, the Red Sox play a split squad against the Rays and the Nationals. Showers mainly this afternoon in Boston, highs in the low 50s. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. Dueling border visits, the Supreme Court, the Senate Minority Leader, Super Tuesday. Lots to chew over with Ron Elving. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. President Biden began the week by saying he hoped for a ceasefire in Gaza by Monday. He has ended the week without that prospect and says the U.S. is going to drop aid to hungry people there. What does it say about U.S. influence in the current conflict? It says our power to bring even a temporary pause in this war is quite limited. We can try to bring the warring parties together, and we have, but both sides still seem determined to achieve something they want by force of arms. Talks are expected to resume on Monday in Cairo, and Ramadan begins a week after that. There's hope, but we also have the fallout from what happened this week when a crowd came to meet an aid convoy. Accounts differ, but at some point, Israeli soldiers started shooting. There are reports of more than 100 dead and hundreds wounded or injured. The U.N. Secretary General is calling for an independent investigation. U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments in April about Donald Trump's claims that as former president, he's immune from prosecution. What are the implications? Enormous. 
Uh, with this added delay, the case may not be resolved before November, and that would leave an unprecedented question hanging over the election. That's why Special Counsel Jack Smith asked the high court to take the case last year, assuming that the justices would want to have the last word sooner or later. But the court said no, then the Circuit Court of Appeals should rule first, they said. Uh, Now the appeals court has ruled unanimously and resoundingly rejecting Trump's claim of immunity. The Supremes could just let that ruling stand, but instead they're going to hear the case themselves uh, seven weeks from now and rule on it sometime after that maybe by June. Both President Biden and Donald Trump visited the U.S.-Mexico border Thursday. Ron, what do you make of the fact that according to Gallup, the number one campaign issue for 2024 is not the economy, inflation, crime, racism, the war in Ukraine, abortion rights, or the budget deficit, it's immigration. The percentage saying immigration went up from 20% to 28% in one month. That's a lot. Uh, that suggests the economy must be doing better, inflation must be coming down, and all those other issues are just a little less salient at the moment because immigration seems to be a worsening problem or certainly a more prominent one in the news. It's also the issue generating the most visual sense of crisis. So we are all seeing lots of video depicting a difficult situation as out of control. How naive does it sound for me to ask you, Ron? What are the prospects for a bipartisan deal on immigration enforcement? In one sense, it's not naive at all, Scott. The Senate has, in fact, reached just such a deal, thanks to a 50-50 bipartisan group of senators who worked on it for weeks, months, really, this winter. It embodies compromise, and yet it could create the toughest border regime in generations. But, of course, actually doing something about the border would take the edge off the issue politically this year. So Trump has made it clear he's against it, and Republicans in both the House and Senate have now blocked further consideration. Mitch McConnell stepping down as Senate Republican leader in November. What do you think he'll be remembered for? He'll be known as longest-serving leader in either party in Senate history. But he himself says his greatest accomplishment— was keeping President Obama from filling a vacancy on the Supreme Court in 2016. McConnell would not even allow hearings on that nominee. That not only allowed Trump to fill that seat, it also allowed him to campaign on filling that seat, and it gave religious conservatives a reason to vote for him. The three justices he was able to appoint as a result have since overturned Roe v. Wade and half a century of abortion rights. Super Tuesday, Tuesday, what are you watching? Just the delegate totals. Uh, These 15 states voting on Tuesday will do what the early voting states did, pile up delegates for Biden and for Trump. The only real suspense concerns what Trump's last challenger, Nikki Haley, will do next. And Pierre's Ron Elvin, thanks so much for being with us on a busy week. Thank you, Scott. China's economy is wobbling. Its stock market is on a slide. Some of its biggest property developers are edging toward bankruptcy, and Beijing is trying to prop prop it all up. As NPR's Emily Fang reports, that includes a purge of senior financial officials and executives. All across China, investments are going bad. Big banks and state-owned firms are piling up big debts, and upper-middle-class residents burned by the decline are taking to the streets, including here in the southwestern province of Sichuan. This investor says her initial investment of $150,000 was lost after finding out the money had been sunk into failing and fraudulent projects. She declined to be named for fear of legal repercussions. She and other investors are under close state surveillance. 
so much so that they received warnings within hours from local police, telling them not to talk to the media after NPR called them. She says she was tricked into buying what are called trust products, a more than $3 trillion sector that involves a type of financial product which once offered super high 10-20% returns, and they were popular among local governments because they raised much-needed funds. The problem is, when the economy started slowing during the pandemic, many trust issuers defaulted, including at this Sichuan fund, letting down more than 8,000 investors. And dozens of these investors decided to stage sit-ins and protests like this one at the offices of the state banking regulator this January. Though they were quickly kicked out. Hers is not the only investment gone belly up. Zhongzhi, one of China's biggest trust issuers, also defaulted last year and filed for bankruptcy this January, among hundreds of financial landmines, as China's internet calls them, which have exploded in the last year. The investor says authorities won't abide by the contract she signed or financial insurance she bought. They just tell her, we have no money. This chaos has been accompanied by a raft of detentions and arrests of senior banking officials and executives. According to authorities, they helped oversee the period that regulators now see as a time of dangerous financial speculation. Among those nabbed is this man. Fan Yifei, a former People's Bank of China vice governor on charges of corruption. Plus Tang Shuangli, the former chairman and party secretary of the Bank of China, and four other senior state banking officials on corruption-related charges. One was even given a suspended death sentence earlier this year. This past January, China's leader Xi Jinping gave a speech illustrating just how important he thought the financial sector was to national security. Saying China needed high-quality development of finance. President Xi is skeptical of financial speculation. This is Gabriel Wildow, a managing director at advisory firm Tineo. He says China's leader Xi believes that there may be fundamental contradictions or tensions between various kinds of transactions that may benefit an individual financial institution or an individual banker and actions that benefit China overall. And so this round of purges of finance officials is a correction after years of excess. The problem, Will Dow says, is the campaign is also spooking remaining finance officials. They now may not dare take more substantive actions to restart China's plateauing economy. Emily Fang, NPR News. Professional sports teams can be multi-billion dollar enterprises that employ multi-million dollar athletes and charge families hundreds of dollars for seats, then sell them $7 hot dogs and $15 beers. And teams still have their palms out. The Cleveland Browns, the Chicago White Sox, and the Capitals and Wizards in Washington, D.C. are among those teams asking their city and or state governments for taxpayer assistance to improve their current stadium or arena or build a shiny, new state-of-the-art one. The unsubtle suggestion is that if local governments don't come across with the cash, those teams will move to a suburb or another city that will grant their wish for public funding. The Oakland A's have already announced they're leaving town for the promise of a brand-new ballpark on the Las Vegas Strip. 
financed by the state of Nevada. Public funding for sports stadiums is founded on the hope that games will draw fans who spend money and bring business to restaurants, stores, hotels, bars, and these days, sports betting operations. They hope a new arena can bring in more tax revenue. But a taxpayer might wonder, can't the owners of, say, the Cleveland Browns pay for their own stadium upgrade if they have enough money to give Deshaun Watson a $230 million contract to play quarterback? Lucas Dupriel of Cleveland.com recently discovered that for the $300 million Cleveland taxpayers might be asked to pay to upgrade their stadium, the city could build new playgrounds in every one of its 172 parks. It could fund its entire Department of Recreation for 16 years, or it could build 39 public pools and aquatic centers. Taxpayer assistance for stadiums doesn't come directly out of the playground budget, of course, but there are so many strains on city funds. Between roads, schools, police, fire, transit, public housing, and other concerns that seem more vital to the public good than having the biggest jumbotron and most opulent locker rooms. I am a sports fan. I know how teams can unite a community. I've seen ballparks invigorate a neighborhood, lend it character, and bring in visitors who spend money, spark investment, and enliven a city. But safe, clean public parks might help a city, too. It could encourage people to spend not just more money in that city, but their lives. And you're listening to NPR News. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up on 90.9 WBUR, WBUR's Ariel Gray has the story on the MFA exhibit of photographs of Black Panther Party women, including a conversation with a local woman who'd never seen the 1970 image featuring her, her siblings, and their friends in Roxbury. WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients. Build your clinical skills and advance your career in the psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for fall. Learn more at bgsp.edu. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. President Biden's signature on a short-term spending bill may have avoided a partial government shutdown this weekend, but a shutdown threat still hangs over Washington. The stopgap measure keeps some federal agencies in business through the end of next week, others through March 22nd. Republicans in Idaho and Missouri are set to weigh in on the race for the GOP presidential nomination today. Delegates will also be awarded at a party convention in Michigan, where the state party is split amid infighting. And a couple of basketball moments to watch for this weekend. LeBron James is likely to become the first NBA player to reach 40,000 points in a career today. And Caitlin Clark could top Pete Maravich's all-time college scoring record when Iowa plays Ohio State tomorrow afternoon. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows, available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Iran held elections Friday as candidates vied to fill the 290 seats in Parliament. A second ballot was held for Iran's Assembly of Experts. That's a powerful clerical body that's charged with selecting the country's supreme leader. NPR's Peter Kenyon joins us from Istanbul. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. How'd the voting go? Well, the official statement is everything went fine, no problems. Uh, turnout, however, seems quite low. Iran has long argued that its regular staging of elections is itself a sign that it is in fact a democracy, an argument long dismissed by Western officials and other critics. Uh, here's how Iran's English-language press TV channel framed the election before polls opened. Top Iranian officials say huge turnout in the elections will give the country great advantages in the international arena. Uh, the leader of Iran's Islamic Revolution has also emphasized that people's participation in the voting will make friends of the nation happy and will disappoint the ill-wishers. But voters showed no inclination to make the government happy. Uh, calls to boycott the vote, uh, they began to surface well before Election Day, and many Iranians apparently decided to heed those calls. And the results being described as possibly a record low turnout. We're waiting for the final figures. Uh, and this continues a trend of declining voter participation in past few years. Uh, even as recently as 2017, President Hassan Rouhani was on the ballot then. Some 70% of eligible voters reportedly turned out. That's how most Iranian elections used to be staged. High turnout was normal. Not so much these days. Uh, Rouhani, by the way, was among those candidates blocked from running for the Assembly of Experts this time. Peter, what's being said about the low turnout? Well, critics, of course, say it's a public repudiation of the cleric-led government. Uh, and this vote was held after a rocky period. Uh, this was the first election since the death in 2022 of a young Kurdish-Iranian woman, 22-year-old Masa Amini, in the custody of Iran's morality police. Uh, she'd been picked up for allegedly wearing her Islamic headscarf improperly. Her death sparked massive anti-government protests in what was deemed the biggest public challenge to the government since the Islamic Revolution back in 1979. Now, this time, ahead of this election, top officials, including the Supreme Leader, including the President, tried to exhort the electorate to turn out in large numbers, uh, apparently with little effect. Uh, now, the Parliament, really not that big a deal. It's not a heavyweight player in politics in Iran. But the vote is a sign that the country's leaders want to do what it takes to keep the country on a hardline conservative course. And how is that conservative course likely to play out in the days ahead? 
Well, uh, it will likely maintain Iran's general hostility to the West. That was probably never in doubt. But it could also have an impact on future leadership of the Islamic Republic. And that is coming back to this assembly of experts, one of those uniquely Iranian bodies. Ayatollah Khamenei's term as supreme leader runs until 2032, uh, at which point he will be 92 years old. Uh, so it's entirely possible that these clerics being elected to the assembly now, they will be the ones who select Khamenei's successor uh, or Iran's next supreme leader. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. The campaign to restrict books at public libraries has a target beyond what's on the shelves. Many conservatives believe the American Library Association has become politicized. A growing number of states are looking to cut ties with the group. The latest is Georgia. And as NPR's Tovia Smith reports, a bill from the Senate there goes further than any of the others. Georgia Republican State Senator Larry Walker says when he found out his local library got a $20,000 grant from the ALA to diversify their collection, adding books with LGBTQ and black themes, for example, he decided he needed to stop what he calls that radical organization. I feel like this is kind of being forced on our children and kind of shoved down our throat. And um, I'm a pretty tolerant individual, but this has just gone too far. Walker's bill, which now goes to the House, would bar any school or public library in Georgia from doing business with the ALA, the predominant professional organization which provides materials, training, and funding. Their agenda and their politics they've inserted into this don't match with conservative Georgia values. About eight other states have made more limited moves to quit the ALA, as have multiple local libraries, but Walker's sweeping bill would force all school and public libraries in Georgia to do so. The idea has been gaining steam since the ALA's president, Emily Drabinsky, described herself on social media as a, quote, Marxist lesbian. Conservative activist Taylor Hawkins points to an academic paper Drabinsky wrote a decade ago. There's a piece called Queering the Catalog where she discusses a strategy for queer library politics, directly injecting politics into the library. This is an organization that cannot be trusted. The ALA insists the organization is not defined by any single person's ideology. We've had many different presidents with many different ranges of political beliefs. You know, they're entitled to their beliefs as much as the individual who doesn't like seeing an LGBT book on the shelf. The ALA's Deborah Caldwell-Stone says forcing libraries to cut ties with the group is itself an act of government censorship. It just stuns me. We are the professional membership organization for librarians. Would you do this to the American Bar Association? Would you do this to the American Medical Association? The librarians in Georgia are pissed. I mean, this is clearly not rooted in good policy. This is more of a political attack. Georgia State Senator Nabila Islam Parks says the bill would hurt libraries by robbing them of the support the ALA provides. The ALA is also the only organization that accredits university programs that train future librarians, and the bill would also make it illegal to spend public funds on that. Again, Senator Islam Parks. I got an email today from a director of a library that said, this is like trying to use a sledgehammer to smash a mosquito. And it's especially bad timing, given all the ALA does to promote information literacy, says David Lankis, the librarianship professor at the University of Texas at Austin and an ALA member. 
we ensure that our barbers and our butchers are up to serving our communities well. But when it comes to the people that help us navigate the world's mis and disinformation, we're putting barriers in place for them doing their job. That's scary. It's a travesty, honestly. Terry Leslie was director of the Campbell County Library in Wyoming in 2022 when it became one of the first local library systems to sever ties with the ALA. She opposed the move and was eventually fired. She says the impact of leaving the ALA was significant. The staff are at a huge disadvantage. Now, they're not exposed to the things that helps us do our jobs most efficiently and most creatively. You know, it harms the community. A national conservative group called Mass Resistance helped drive the Campbell County changes, and group head Brian Kamenker says many more local libraries are interested in doing the same. Just yesterday, we were talking with a county supervisor in Virginia, and we were giving her our model legislation. And, you know, it's a surprisingly easy sell around the country. But not always. Some governors are pushing back. Wyoming Republican Governor Mark Gordon, for example, says he shares concerns that the Library Association has become politicized, but he's refused calls to cut his state's ties with the ALA, calling that a media stunt. Tovia Smith, NPR News. What's it like to navigate a busy research lab as a deaf person? A lot of words in science tend to be fingerspelled. Many scientific terms simply don't have signs in ASL, American Sign Language. So students and scientists have had to come up with workarounds. Metastasis means something's messed up in the cell. Something's gone wrong. So the cell gets messed up and then it spreads. And this is the sign for spread, spread out. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha making the language of science more inclusive. You can catch that story on NPR.org or tell your smart speaker to play your member station by name. There's an exhibit at a museum in Boston to highlight women of the Black Panther Party through photographs. Women played an important role in the Marxist militant group, but some of them in the photos taken in the late 60s and 70s are unnamed. Member station WBUR's reporter Ariel Gray tracked down one of these women, and it's the first time she's seen her photo in person. The halls of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston are pretty much empty when I arrive with Gail Jones. We enter an exhibit, but she stops and turns to look at a photo. It's of a young black woman in a black jacket. She's unnamed on the museum placard, but Jones recognizes her. Oh my gosh, look at Franny smoking a cigarette. Oh my gosh. This is amazing. We're at the museum to see a photo of Jones, her siblings, and friends that photographer Stephen Shames took in Boston over five decades ago. It's now a part of Comrade Sisters, an exhibit of Shame's photographs taken across the country that highlight women of the Black Panther Party. Shames was the official photographer for the Black Panthers. Jones was just 15 when the photo was taken. I, I, I'm in total shock. I don't think I own a picture of me at that age. Weeks ago, I visited the MFA to see Comrade Sisters. One photograph from Boston, titled Women of the Black Panther Party, caught my eye. I wondered who the five nameless teenagers in the photo were. 
I asked curator Karen Haas if she had any information. So there are a couple pictures in the exhibition that were taken in Boston of uh, unnamed, unfortunately. If anyone recognizes anyone, I'll be thrilled. I posted the photo on Facebook. Within a day or two, one of the teenagers was identified as Gail Jones. Her son put us in contact. She was unaware the photo was in a museum. That's my sister, Jacqueline. We call her Jackie. That's my brother, Fred. That is, we called her Franny, but her name is Frances Phoenix. This is Eva Lorraine Phoenix, but we called her Rainy. And that's me, Gail Hayes Jones. The Black Panther Party was a Black power organization started in 1966 by Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton. A few years later, Jacqueline and Frederick Hayes started volunteering for the Boston chapter. Jones joined her siblings after she experienced a tragedy. She found a friend dead of an overdose. And so I started running with my brother and sister and Rainy and Franny. And when they started going to the Black Panther Party, it kind of something that gave me hope again, because that was a time when, oh, I'm getting emotional. But that was a time when you didn't go to counseling. People would say, oh, she's going to be all right. But I wasn't all right. And so this gave me purpose. Jones would hand out party newspapers at a train station. Frederick and Jacqueline would get up before school to help run the free breakfast program for children. And that's a lot of what we learned from the Black Panther Party, to serve the people because there were so many people who were in need. Around 65% of the party's membership was women. They had a hand in everything from being in leadership positions to running free health clinics. Women experienced sexism within the party, but Jones says she didn't in the Boston chapter. We were always at the forefront, making sure the work was getting done. But we were appreciated. They appreciated every day that we came. The museum has added their names to the label of the photo, seeing it as a full circle moment for Jones. I'm glad that I can look back and see the work that we did at such a young age. Gil Jones is retired now from her job at the Massachusetts transit system. She says she plans on moving down south, where her sister Jacqueline is. Frederick, their brother, died in 2016. Eva Rainey Phoenix, one of the other women photographed, has dementia. Jones visited her and showed her the picture. But she said, that's our scale. And I said, I know. I was so happy I was able to show her the picture because she recognized everyone. So that was another happy moment. They're no longer just women of the Black Panther Party. The names and story behind the photo are now known. For NPR News, I'm Ariel Gray in Boston. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. I am a man who likes a pocket square, that small flourish of fabric that goes in the pocket of a suit jacket or a blazer. In fact, I feel nearly naked without a pocket square, not with pajamas. 
So it didn't escape notice at Weekend Edition that menswear writer Derek Guy has been imparting wisdom about the do's and the don'ts of pocket square fashion. Derek Guy of the blog Put This On joins us from San Francisco. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Silk, cotton, or linen? Um, most of my pocket squares are a wool silk mix, but I think wool, silk, cotton, or linen, all of them work depending on the outfit and what you want. Patterns, prints, or stripes? The pocket square should be patterned, but should be a distinct design that's not used for shirts, jackets, and neckties. There are many companies that make unique prints for pocket squares, and even if no one sees the pattern, I think having a distinctive pattern kind of makes it look like you didn't just cut up a piece of fabric and stuffed into your pocket. Uh, you wrote on X or Twitter, a pocket square should never match the tie too closely. Well, why not? Well, you know, it kind of goes back to a very basic idea in men's dress. And as overused as the word may be, this idea of sprezzatura, of effortlessness. And if your tie and pocket square match too closely, like if they're made from the same fabric, let's say if you are wearing a blue pin dot tie, I don't think you should wear a blue pin dot pocket square, both because it looks like you bought them in a kind of like box set from Amazon or one of those stores that supply high school students with prom clothes. <laughs> and it also looks a little bit too contrived. It looks like you like really thought about this and put this outfit together. When a pocket square doesn't exactly match the tie, but rather complements the tie. It creates a pleasing visual effect, but it also looks like you just threw this random accessory into your pocket and it happened to look good. That was what I was always told when I when I worked the uh, holiday season in the menswear department of Marshall Field. <laughs> the idea of a pocket square was to look effortless, like the last thing you do before you go out the door. Right. It's it's also one of the reasons why I don't think you should fold it into these kind of like origami shapes. It should just be something you stuff into your pocket. Any practical purpose to a pocket square? No, it's just decorative. Men especially try to find reasons for something. So sometimes a hat will feel less contrived if you have a reason to wear a hat, for example, like the weather. But you know, a lot of things in men's clothing is just decorative. A silk necktie, which is quickly disappearing, is is purely a decorative thing. Uh, and a pocket square is just purely decorative. Is there a resurgence of pocket squares? I hate to say it, but I don't think there is. There was for a brief moment about 10 or 15 years ago when tailoring was kind of coming back. Um, it is notable that President Biden is wears a pocket square most of the time. And I suspect will be the last U.S. president to wear a pocket square with any regularity. But they are, for the most part, disappearing. One, because tailored jackets are mostly disappearing. And then of the people that wear tailored jackets, only a small subset will wear a pocket square. But I am with you in that I think a, a tailored jacket looks better with one. The, the area on your chest looks a little bit blank, especially if you're not wearing a tie. Um, if you're not going to wear a tie, then I definitely think you should wear a pocket square just to have a little bit of flourish. Derek Guy of the fashion blog put this on. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, may all your pocket squares square up. Thank you again for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. 
Local lawmakers are celebrating the decision by CVS and Walgreens to start selling a standard medication abortion drug in Massachusetts. The companies will provide mifepristone at some pharmacies in Massachusetts and four other states. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says this marks a massive step forward toward ensuring essential health care. Governor Moore Healy points out that the drug has been used safely for more than two decades. The nonprofit United Way is awarding grants to local organizations to run emergency family shelters in Boston's Seaport neighborhood and at the YMCA of Greater Boston. The organizations include the Black Refugee and Immigrant Community Coalition, the Greater Boston YMCA, and the Unitarian Universalist Association. These organizations also will provide families with meals, housing assistance, and employment support. It's 38 degrees in Boston, some showers mainly this afternoon, and highs today in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Golda's Balcony, the story of Golda Meir at the Liebergott Black Box Theater at Emerson's Paramount Center, now through March 10th, emersontheaters.com. And Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel proud every time I listen to WBUR, because now I feel like I'm a part of it. Kathy Musty is ensuring a strong future for WBUR with her planned gift. It's so valuable, and I really want that money to do something good. I don't think of it as a gift to WBUR. I think of it as a gift to the entire Boston community. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Eight translators walk into a house. Now, this isn't the beginning of a joke. It's a novel by the famed translator Jennifer Croft. It's 2017 and eight translators of the works of Irina Ray, a celebrated Polish novelist, arrive at her home to translate her unfolding work. The author leads them on hikes into the ancient Bialowiza forest, but doesn't show them her pages. Then... The author disappears. The story of the search of translators for their author, whom they worship, leads them through thickets of cunning debates about language, meaning national differences, cultural thefts, and the fragility of the great forest all around them. The title is The Extinction of Irina Ray and Jennifer Croft, who joined us in 2022 as translator of Nobel laureates Olga Tokarczuk's The Books of Jacob, joins us now from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me back. Do translators really get together like this? You know, it doesn't happen a lot, but I have gotten together with Olga Tokarczuk's translators a number of times, whether she's organized it or whether it's been organized by the Polish government, which sometimes sponsors translations into other languages in an effort to promote Polish culture abroad. 
the translators in your novel are nicknamed by their languages, so Swedish, Czech, Serbian, Slovenian, English, German, French, and Spanish. Do they begin to see themselves as kind of national representatives, almost like a translating UN? Yeah, I think that's one of the many questions that I wanted to explore that there may not be an easy answer to. But when I speak of myself or think of myself as the English language translator of Federico Falco, an Argentine writer I work with, that gives me a lot of responsibility, obviously, and also a lot of power because I'm taking on this role for the entire English-speaking world. And I wanted to explore what that means. Let me ask you about the trouble between Emmy, who's the Spanish translator, and Alexis, who's the English translator. What's at the root of that, do you think? Is it just rivalry, something else? Well, it was important to me to write the book from the perspective that was not the English language translator perspective, because I did want mm -hmm. to explore these power dynamics and hierarchies within the world of the translators who seem to be very selfless, benevolent creatures on the surface, but I wanted to kind of tap into, surely they must have underlying egos, and I wanted to tap into what was happening inside them, especially once their author leaves. Here they are in the wilderness, and the English language translation is the one that is associated with the most prestige and the most money. Mm -hmm. So I have my main narrator is the Spanish language translator. She's from Argentina, which is a very particular kind of Spanish. And she has written this novel in Polish, not her native language. It's being translated for us into English by her arch nemesis, the English language translator from Arkansas, Alexis Archer. And I did that also to really dramatize the power of translation because Alexis is constantly undermining the main narrative in her translation. Are they all competing for the love of their author? Yes. I mean, I think they're all competing for a lot of different things. But in this case, there is this kind of cross between a divine figure and a maternal figure, and they really believe that she can change the world. And one of the things in particular that she's working on here has to do with climate change and biodiversity loss. So the stakes are high, and they, they have this faith in her that she can help solve these problems. Well, that brings us to, in many ways, the overwhelming character of the novel, which is the Bialovisa forest, overwhelming and endangered. What would you like readers to feel? I started really working on this book in 2017. I had been to the Białowieża forest before. It's the last remaining primeval forest in Europe, meaning it's the last forest that hasn't been interfered with by human beings. Of course, there have been humans around, but it hasn't been cut down and replanted. When trees die there, they're just, they're left there. And that allows for this incredible richness of insect life and fungal life. And it's such a powerful place. It's really like nothing else I've ever seen. But in 2017, the Polish government began logging. So there was this whole controversy that I wanted to explore. Essentially, how do we respond to climate change? There was an unprecedented drought in the forest, and that seemed to be leading to an infestation of spruce bark beetles. The government is responding by just cutting down massive swaths of trees. And yeah, it was kind of a disturbing time. And I wanted to really just bring people's attention to this sacred space that is unique. And I really do think we have to fight to protect. There's um, a lot of fungi, slime, and mold in the novel, too. 
They're, yeah. And, it, and it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I'm always drawn to, you know, making the humble beautiful. I was very taken with a book called Entangled Life by Merlin mm -hmm. Sheldrake. He goes a long way toward making fungi seem like the world's most spectacular beings. And he argues that life as we know it on Earth couldn't possibly exist without fungi. And maybe that fungi hold the key to our future. So I wanted to think about various kinds of intelligence and also especially shape-shifting, which is something that translation is and something that fungi and slime molds can do much more easily than the animals we're familiar with. Translation is shape-shifting? Yeah, I mean, I think here it really feels like the translators are becoming their author, particularly once she's gone, actually. They they start kind of consuming her food, wearing her clothing, wearing her shoes, reading things they're not supposed to be reading, just increasingly taking over her role in the household, the village, the forest, and perhaps even in the publishing industry. So there's some shape-shifting there. There's the way that the actual text on the screen transforms as I put in my English words over the Polish language or the Spanish language words, kind of consuming them. So there's an element of that, definitely. Mm. Completing this novel sounds like it coincided with just about the busiest time of a human life. You gave birth to twins. Do you think that affected the story? I think it definitely must have. I was wrapping up this manuscript to submit to publishers when I was so pregnant that I literally couldn't reach around my own belly to access the keyboard of my laptop. I mean, I, and I had all kinds of health complications because I I gave birth when I was 40 and multiples often lead to more complications anyway. So I had carpal tunnel syndrome, my vision got worse. It was a, an oddly intense situation in which to be completing a book. And then I sold the book about two weeks after giving birth to them by emergency C-section. So I was still having some health issues, quite a few actually. And suddenly I had these two little squealing tiny six pound items that I had to keep alive. And it just totally transformed my way of working. Obviously, I yeah. I wrote the first part of this book in a luxurious Swiss treehouse, completely alone in the mountains near Geneva. This was the opposite of that. I was never able to focus for more than a few minutes. I was never able to kind of immerse myself in this fictional world. So I will be really curious to hear from readers if any of that sort of delirium or panic comes through in the text. It probably does. Jennifer Croft, her novel, The Extinction of Irina Ray. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. In the 1920s and 30s, jazz was taking off at the United States and much of Europe including Germany. Classical composers even began to meld jazz styles into their music. But then the Nazis came to power in 1933. They banned jazz and swing as part of what they called degenerate culture composed by Jews and black musicians. For almost four decades now, the Palast Orchestra in Germany 
has performed songs from what's often called Germany's golden 20s. Mein Schatz, ich schwöre dir, kommst du nicht bald zu mir? Wird alles kalt bei mir, vor Schmerz klopft nur mein Herz. Max Rob is a German jazz singer and leader of the Palast Orchestra and joins us now from Germany. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. What spoke to you about this music? When I was a child, my father had a record collection and there was one gramophone record in this collection. And the song was, nobody was singing, the title was I'm Crazy About Hilde. But uh, the orchestra was so funny and so fast and in a way there was a melancholy background, the way the trumpet were playing and uh, the saxophones, the special style. I was touched by the music. Let's listen to one of your selections here if we could. You're the cream in my coffee. You're the cream in my coffee, you're the soldier my steel. You will always be my necessity, I will lost without you. Well, that's got zip. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, a, yeah, it's a very fast uh, interpretation. Maybe it's from a live concert. We, when we do it as an encore, we're crazy and fast. <laughs> yeah. You're currently on tour and will be coming to the U.S. in March. And you're going to be playing some Irving Berlin, some Cole Porter, and German music of the 20s and 30s. What do you think there is about this music that that still has a hold on people really a hundred years after it came out? Yeah, it's it's strange, but you know, if you play an instrumental phrase or a, a sentimental phrase, the people are touched. And if you uh, sing a funny word, a funny line, the people are laughing in, in the same time. It's still working. The music is timeless. Whenever we're in the United States, for nearly over uh, 20 years now, we play the American songs, of course, but the way we played it, maybe a song like Singing in the Rain, we played like it, the band was it playing in 1929. By the way, when we came the first time to Los Angeles, it was by an uh, invitation of the widow of Walter Jurman. He was very successful in Berlin in, in, uh, in the time of the Weimar uh, Republic, wrote songs like My Gorilla Has a Villa in the Zoo or You're Not the First One, Maybe You Could Be the Last. So as a Jewish person, he was able to leave Berlin immediately when the Nazis came to power. And later he was absolutely uh, successful in America. He wrote songs, for example, San Francisco, San Francisco, open your open golden, your golden gate. gate. You let no stranger wait. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all these uh, Gaucho Marx films are with the music of uh, Walter Jurman. Many of the composers, musicians, performers, as you note, had either fled or or they died tragically, outrageously, because they were Jews. Yeah, it was a horrible period in, in German history. It's a shame, but the music is still alive. And, um, and whenever I am on stage and um, have my announcements, I always mention the name of the composers, that they don't have to be forgotten. Mm. Well, let me ask you about one of the composers whose name is still very familiar these days, and that's Kurt Weill. Of course. Who yeah. uh, 
came to the United States in, uh, in 1933. In fact, let's play a little from a song a lot of Americans may be less familiar with, although it's called Alabama Song. What's the story of this song? It was written for Mahogany, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, the city of Mahogany, yes. And uh, of course, uh, Bertolt Brecht and he, they, they, were, they were working together. I have heard a recording of Mahogany. How do we hear it these days? How does it reflect events that were going on then in the 30s? Kurtweil took very strange harmonies and unusual uh, melodies, and I can't explain it. But when we played, the audience is still touched. And there was a rock band who played this in the, the 70s. The Doors. The Doors did it. The a Doors, version, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the music is um, still alive, still there. There are people who draw parallels between the rhetoric in the World War II years in Germany and the rise of the Nazi party and what's going on in the world now. Yeah. Uh, Right-wing nationalist movements in Europe, hatred on display in the United States. I wonder if there's something you would like people to hear in this music now. That was a dangerous time when they created, but you won't find it in the lyrics of the songs. They speak about love and, and personal relationship. The music wants to entertain the people and to, mm. to make them forget what's outside of the concert hall or the dance hall. Max, what do you enjoy about singing this music now? Uh, we travel a lot, and of course, the train is not on time, the plane is, didn't start, I will <laughs> lose our baggage or whatever. But when we start, um, we, have, we start with the, with the concert at 8 o'clock, the world is wonderful. And, and we make the people forget what's going on in the world, and I forget it in a way too. Max Raba, Max and the Palast Orchestra will tour the U.S. in this month of March. Max, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. This is NPR. Thanks for spending some time this Saturday morning with 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Just ahead on Weekend Edition, Henry Barber of the Republican National Committee discusses his resolution to restrict the RNC from spending money on Donald Trump's legal fees. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Some showers expected this afternoon.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com. Imagine that you're sitting on a beach in Tahiti. Believe it or not, that is Lil John, the crunk legend behind hits like Turned Down for What? In his latest release, Total Meditation, he turns the tempo way down through a series of guided meditations. Lil John lets us in on the secrets of his practice Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Nina Khrushcheva and the funeral of Alexei Navalny and his legacy. Then Henry Barber of the Republican National Committee on why he wants the RNC to stay neutral through the primaries and not to be a bank for Donald Trump. Also, Oregon's legislature changes course on the state's drug policies. And Ethan Cohen makes a movie with his wife, Trisha Cook. Drive Away Dolls, about two friends on a road trip who don't know there's a case in the trunk or what's in it. Money isn't that interesting. Money's always in the case. Ah, but not this time. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, March 2nd, 2024. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The weekend forecast for the Texas Panhandle may prove to be a challenge for firefighters. The National Weather Service is warning of strong winds and relatively low humidity. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says a wildfire's air may have destroyed as many as 500 structures. In Will Dorado, Lone Star Stockyards Manager Bill Martin says the fires were so intense, many cattle were unable to avoid the flames. People cut fences, open gates, so the cows can move on their own, get out of the way of it, but... It came so hard so fast, uh, most of them weren't able to, to get away from it. The fires have burned more than 1,700 square miles, and with the weather this weekend, officials are warning that the threat is not over yet. The U.S. is expected to soon begin airdropping supplies into Gaza. President Biden approved the airdrops, saying the U.S. will join Jordan and other nations in the effort to deliver food and humanitarian supplies. Biden's announcement came a day after dozens of Palestinians were killed while racing to pull supplies off an aid convoy. Israel says the victims have been trampled after Israeli troops fired warning shots. Health officials in Gaza, though, say Israeli forces shot dead more than 100 Palestinians. The U.N. is calling for an independent investigation. President Biden highlighting recent drops in violent crime. Speaking this week at the White House, he said the drops are a sign that his public safety initiatives are working. More on that from NPR's Meg Anderson. Violent crime is indeed dropping across the country. Recent data show homicides were down by more than 10 percent last year compared to the year before. And overall, other violent crimes are down, too. 
President Biden took those numbers as an opportunity to highlight his American rescue plan. That sweeping COVID relief package gave more than $15 billion to states and cities to put toward hiring more police officers and expanding policing alternatives like crisis intervention programs. My administration is going to choose progress over politics and communities across the country are safer as a result of that. Biden also urged Congress to go further by passing measures to curb gun violence, like universal background checks and banning assault weapons. Meg Anderson, NPR News. Unofficial figures from Iran's parliamentary elections put the turnout at about 40 percent, which would be the lowest since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. The BBC's Caroline Davis reports that Iran's rulers had been pressing for high participation. With votes tallied manually, Iran's ballot takes time to count. Rather than who has won, the question is still how many voted. Echoing the sentiments of many of those in power in Iran, some of the country's media have criticized Western news for suggesting the turnout would be low, despite the polls coming from Iranian bodies. No official turnout figure has been announced. Analysts suggested that a low turnout would be a show of disenchantment with politics in the country. The BBC's Caroline Davis reporting. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The nonprofit United Way is awarding grants to several local organizations to run emergency family shelters. Those organizations include the Black Refugee and Immigrant Community Coalition, the Greater Boston YMCA, and the Unitarian Universalist Association. The grants will be used to run a shelter in Boston's Seaport neighborhood and at the YMCA of Greater Boston. These organizations also will provide families with meals, housing assistance, and employment support. New documents in a wrongful death lawsuit against three Stoughton police officers show one of the officers initiated sexual contact with a 15-year-old girl. The estate of Sandra Birchmore alleges she was targeted by the officers when she was participating in a Stoughton police youth program. The Boston Globe reports a police department investigation detailed the sexual misconduct by the officers. Birchmore was 23 and pregnant when she died by suicide three years ago. The state's police oversight agency and the attorney general are investigating. Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley is making a campaign stop in Massachusetts today. She's holding a rally at the Sheraton Hotel in Needham at 8 tonight. Her visit comes three days before voters in Massachusetts and 14 other states will cast their votes in the Super Tuesday primary. It's open house weekend at a train fan destination in Boston. Visitors to the Bay State Model Railroad Museum in Roslindale will see trains traveling along tracks through well-constructed, very detailed landscapes. Jeremy Hartwell's the president of the club that runs the museum and says the newer locomotives have a microchip enhancing their performance. Different features, different um, functions, and we can run it like a much more realistic model railroad because now we've added lighting effects, we've added sound effects. The Railroad Museum in Roslindale Village is open today and tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 4. Admissions $5. Children are free. The museum only accepts cash. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Highs in the low 50s today. Some showers mainly this afternoon. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com and listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. Crowds outside a church in Moscow for the funeral of Alexei Navalny. The Russian opposition leader died just two weeks ago in an Arctic penal colony. Mourners chanted, Putin is a murderer. Nina Khrushcheva teaches international affairs at the New School in New York City, and she joins us now. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you. Despite the risk of arrest, thousands of mourners turned out yesterday for Alexei Navalny's funeral. What does this say about him and the legacy he leaves? Tens of thousands, actually. There was a lot, a lot of people. We thought that there would be many people, but that really toppled all the expectations. It says that Russia is not as monolithic as it is being presented, at least for the last two years, that 80% support Putin and people for the war. It's not the case. I mean, if you are in Russia, you will see that cracks to the system are visible everywhere. And once in a while, when it's safer than protest individually, because safer, it was officially sanctioned funeral, allowed funeral, mm-hmm. and therefore people people came out. And the legacy of Alexei Navalny is a hero. He's the Andrei Sakharov, uh, the human rights, uh, human rights oppositionist in the 1970s and 80s. And now he's the hero of against the regime and Putin's legacy is that he would always be a killer, direct or indirect, of Alexei Navalny. At the same time, um, does Alexei Navalny's death and the deaths of so many opponents of the Putin regime uh, discourage the opposition from showing up, from taking action? Well, it's difficult. It's, uh, the opposition is not discouraged. It's just really impossible to be that because the minute uh, you are recognized or even p- potentially suspected to be an opposition leader, you're going to end in, end up in prison. Your, mm-hmm. your uh, property will be confiscated. And we saw it before Navalny last month with uh, in presidential candidate uh, Dmit- um, uh, Nadezhdin, who uh, gathered many, many signatures in his support. And what happened next, the system immediately forbade him from uh, running for president. So it is difficult, but the point is that there is a very serious protest underneath, a silent majority, I don't know if it's majority, but silent force that is mm-hmm. absolutely clear that they are not a fan of what's going on in the country. Uh, Yulia... Navalny, uh, Alexei Navalny's widow, has indicated that she would like to kind of pick up the mantle and continue uh, the work of her husband. Um, She and her children did not attend the funeral. Is it dangerous for her to return to Russia and try and become active? It is dangerous for her, and she has to pick up the mantle. Otherwise, Alexei Navalny, and she said it herself, would have died in vain. So it's a very important that she speaks up. But how successful she could be in really um, galvanizing the opposition inside the country, I'm not that sure, because Navalny himself understood that in order to be an opposition leader in the, uh, an opposition leader about the country, you have to be in the country. And that's why he returned after poisoning, recuperating in Berlin. Uh, he returned to Moscow in January 2021, knowing what the consequences would be for him. So it would be difficult for her, but it's better than she speaks up than she doesn't. 
Professor Khrushcheva, you you know Russia so well, its its leaders, its history. Is there a way for people opposed to the Putin regime to challenge his rule and and survive? Well, so far they are surviving, but it's very difficult to challenge his rule and have it results. At least it doesn't seem to be happening uh, in the near future. But what's important is to recognize that the opposition, as I said, the opposition is there. Uh, one of the Western ambassadors uh, who came to the funeral yesterday said, oh, we finally saw the human face of Russia. Well, you know, what was he doing as an ambassador? There is a human face of Russia, and I hope it's going to be presented in the Western media more, because that helps that all Russians are not being hated, as if they're all supporters of Putin, if they stay in the country. Half a minute that we have left, a lot of people thought that Russia's war in Ukraine would uh, significantly alter the support for Putin. Has that not been the case? Well, it has been the case, but when you are oppressed from the top uh, all the time, when your voice, when even a like on Facebook becomes a criminal case, it's very difficult to express it openly uh, the way everybody thought Russians should. So yes, the, the, the support has, has, uh, has waned, but at the same time, the expression of it is almost not possible. Nina Khrushcheva of the New School in New York, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Former President Donald Trump owes half a billion dollars in legal judgments right now. That number may grow as Trump fights 91 felony charges in four separate criminal cases. Can he pay with funds raised by the Republican National Committee? Henry Barber, an RNC member from Mississippi, has drafted a pair of resolutions ahead of next week's committee meeting in Houston. One requests the RNC to stay neutral during the primaries. The other would prevent the committee from paying Trump's legal bills. Henry Barber joins us now from Yazoo City, Mississippi. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. Good, good to be with you. Mr. Barber, why do you feel it's important for the RNC to uh, to stay neutral when it's hard to see how anybody else could defeat Donald Trump in the primaries? Well, just because he has the lead doesn't yet make him the nominee. He's got about 110 delegates, one at this point, but he needs 1,215 to have a majority of the delegates. And he's going to have that soon. And And so really the neutrality resolution that we offered is in some respects obsolete, but we felt it was important to make the point. But I will say we are really focused on the resolution that deals with it. The RNC should spend its resources solely on winning elections and not paying any candidates legal bills. Doesn't Donald Trump's campaign say they, they won't do that? Uh, they have recently, and we appreciate that the fact that the Trump campaign did issue a statement, and they said that they will not use uh, RNC funds to pay any of President Trump's legal bills. And that's certainly uh, good news because the RNC probably needs to raise upwards of $250 million this year to help our nominee win back the White House. And, and I think it's important for RNC donors to know when they give money that it's going towards winning elections. Haven't Republicans and Donald Trump actually been using his indictments and court judgments to, to raise an awful lot of money? Well, there's no question that um, when the courts came after uh, Donald Trump, particularly when it started in New York, that it was a 
political benefit. But that's political, and it's a whole other thing to say, oh, we're going to use you know, political money, RNC dollars, uh, to pay legal bills. There's a Republican National Committee leadership change that's on the agenda next week in Houston. Who, yes. do, you, who do you support? There's going to be one candidate uh, for chairman, and that's Michael Watley, the chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party, and President Trump's uh, daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, who also from North Carolina. I don't know Laura. I, I know Michael well. Michael is an outstanding state party chair. I don't agree with the change that they're making, but I will say it's not unusual for a presidential nominee to come in once they have secured the nomination to influence the RNC and to have some of their staff people there. I will say this is the first time since Eisenhower that we have changed chairs in a presidential election year. I don't think it's the you know the smartest play, but you know it's their call, and um, I plan on voting for Michael Watley uh, next week. If the Trump campaign says they won't use any RNC funds to pay Donald Trump's legal bills, why isn't that good enough for you? Why do you insist on a resolution? Well, number one, we offered the resolution, I think, before they said that. Um, but it just look, it's important to memorialize it and to put it in a writing. I, I just think it makes it stronger. I, I mean, does it make it seem like you doubt their word? No, I don't doubt. I don't doubt their word. Um, Chris Lasavita, one of the guys running uh, Trump's campaign, has said plainly that they're not going to use it. I take him at his word for it. But that doesn't mean I'm going to drop the resolution. But, uh, you know, frankly, you know, we don't expect it to pass before the full committee. But we will have uh, made it an issue, and I think we will have emphasized that, look, the RNC has one job. It's winning elections. We should spend our money on winning elections and not paying anybody's legal bills. Henry Barber serves as National Committeeman for Mississippi on the Republican National Committee. Thank you so much for being with us, sir. Scott, my pleasure. Later today... On All Things Considered. What makes a movie score Oscar-worthy? Music that stands or maybe swims on its own? Ahead of next week's Oscars, NPR's Scott Detrow talks with Stephen Thompson of NPR's Pop Culture Poppy... (laughs) NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour about the nominees for Best Original Score. You can sink your teeth into this one on your smartphone, although you'll leave marks, or your smart speaker... Or even your radio. You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for starting your weekend with us here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll get the story from Anchorage, where members of a social media group have helped people find everything from alligator meat to divorce lawyers to snow tires. That's ahead on Weekend Edition. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Highs today in the low 50s. Some showers mainly starting this afternoon. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Golda's Balcony, the story of Golda Meir, at the Liebergott Black Box Theater at Emerson's Paramount Center, now through March 10th. EmersonTheaters.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is urging residents of the Texas Panhandle to remain vigilant this weekend. The forecast for the National Weather Service says strong winds, relatively low humidity, and dry conditions pose a significant wildfire threat. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is relaxing its COVID guidelines. The CDC is no longer mandating isolation and masking and says parents can start treating the virus like other respiratory illnesses. And Alaska's Iditarod sled dog race is getting underway this weekend. The official start is not until tomorrow, but mushers and their dogs will be lining up in Anchorage today for the ceremonial kickoff. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The most extensive experiment in the U.S. to decriminalize many drugs may be over. The Oregon State Legislature has voted to overhaul the drug drug decriminalization measure that voters passed just a few years ago. The governor has indicated that she is open to signing the bill. Dirk Vanderhart with Oregon Public Broadcasting joins us. Dirk, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Scott. Begin by telling us, please, what's in this new bill. Yeah, well, there's a lot in the bill. I mean, the reason you and I are talking about it is because of one specific piece that would make possessing small amounts of drugs a crime punishable by up to six months in jail. That is a stark difference from the law Oregon has operated under since 2021 when drug possession became a violation similar to a traffic ticket. But, you know, this is not merely Oregon reverting back to the old days. The Democrats who wrote this bill insist they're putting forward a sort of kinder, gentler approach to criminal justice. Um, The bill offers drug users the option of avoiding a conviction if they agree to seek treatment. And even when people are put in jail under the bill, they could be released in order to participate in drug treatment. The other major thing the bill would do is expand access to addiction services for drug users in Oregon, which I think many people see as the most important piece. Oregonians voted to decriminalize drug possession in 2020. Already, right now, there's an overhaul. What happened? 
Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things. You know, the, the first is that the system envisioned under that ballot measure you mentioned has been very slow to emerge. This was based on the idea that addiction should be addressed with health care rather than police and jails. But Oregon stumbled when it came to creating the treatment services that were necessary for that to happen. The second thing is that decriminalization really coincided with a growing fentanyl crisis. That's led to a surge of overdose deaths here. It's created public disorder, things like open drug use on the streets of Portland. That has convinced, I think, many people that things aren't working. And, and some of the state's richest people have begun backing a ballot measure to end decriminalization. Um, that, I think, put a lot of pressure on lawmakers to act, since many of them thought that measure would be harmful. Was there opposition? There was. You know, this has been a very hard-fought debate here, and I think an extremely tough call for many Democrats in particular. Um, one senator said yesterday there are hard votes, harder votes, and then there was this vote. But lawmakers wound up supporting it anyway. Republicans have wanted to end decriminalization for years now. They argue criminal consequences are necessary to fight addiction. Democrats have been far more wary, as I say, but in the end, I think they were moved by the threat of that ballot measure. And meanwhile, advocacy groups and some drug treatment providers have been very adamant that this decision is a mistake for Oregon. Um, they believe the state is retreating back to a failed war on drugs, and they can credibly point to numbers that suggest it will be felt disproportionately by people of color. What happens next? Well, the bill moves on to Oregon's Democratic governor, Tina Kotek. She doesn't like to show her cards when it comes to bills. She hasn't done that entirely at this point, but she has, as you say, said she's open to signing it. I think she's widely expected to sign it. Uh, assuming that happens, there are big questions about how this new law will mean going forward, what it means. You know, criminal consequences would kick in in September. Um, the state estimates show that they are likely to funnel more than a thousand people into the criminal justice system every year. That is certain to create issues in Oregon, which has a pretty severe public defender shortage. And I don't think it will just be the courts. You know, this is a brand new system that would be implemented here. I think everyone expects it could get a little rocky. Dirk Vanderhart with OPB, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Scott. More than 100,000 voters in Michigan's Democratic primary this week selected uncommitted rather than President Biden. Many of those who chose uncommitted are displeased with the president's support of Israel in Gaza. And Michigan is, of course, considered a critical state in this fall's presidential election. Well, El El Zayat is the CEO of Engage, a grassroots organization for Muslim Americans. He also served for a decade in the U.S. State Department. Mr. Al Zayat joins us now from our studios in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What does the vote this week tell you? It really tells us that there is white disappointment and apprehension regarding the U.S. policy toward Israel-Palestine and particularly Gaza. Uh, after you know so many killed and injured, over thirty thousand, and including thirteen thousand children, uh, the Democratic voters of Michigan, or at least a, a good portion of them, is saying that they want to see a change in the policy, and they're not happy with what they're seeing. And it's 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 transcending the Muslim communities. You're seeing this with with Arab communities who are majority non-Muslim in America, as well as you know progressive communities, young communities, communities of color. They're really concerned. Well, let me ask you the political question. How do many Arab-American, Muslim-American voters see uh, the likely choice between President Biden and Donald Trump? 
Well, look, uh, as a Muslim American, uh, our community, the majority, is very clear-eyed about who Donald Trump is and his brand of the Republican Party. Islamophobia, the bigotry that we saw for four years that we're seeing on the campaign trail, it's really unfortunate because our community uh, largely turned out the vote for the Biden-Harris ticket in 2020, and we are proud to have been a part of that. Uh, but now, given this policy, a lot of folks are not just upset. Many have lost family members. I know uh, a few cases where they've lost over 100 uh, who were killed when their building was targeted by the Israeli Air Force. And the choices for our communities need to be better than that. We need our leaders, whether they're Republican or Democrats, to value human life and also to understand there's a connection between what is happening in places like Gaza and what's happening here at home. We had a child murdered in Chicago. We had Palestinian students in Vermont attacked and elsewhere. It's affecting us here. What would you like the administration to do right now that might change the situation in Gaza? What we need is to enforce our own policies. The administration is saying we do not approve of the targeting of civilians, and we've communicated this to the Israelis. We want more aid to enter Gaza, particularly given what we're seeing where the UN agencies are warning of famine and communicable diseases. And we are saying that we do support a two-state solution. What are the actions that we are taking to enforce this? to finally use our pressure points, uh, in this case with the Israelis, to agree to a mutual ceasefire? How come we are proposing to send even more money to, to Netanyahu and his government? How come we are not also conditioning some of the military assets and weapons that we are sharing with them to ensure that they're not used into targeting of civilians and committing human rights atrocities? And also our veto in the UN. We have now cast a number of vetoes shielding the Israeli government from accountability. And I'm someone who've worked on the Syria conflict, and we used to criticize Russia for wielding its veto to protect the government of Bashar al-Assad that was inflicting a lot of harm on its people. And now we're doing the same for Israel. You wrote a piece last year um, and said the Biden administration might take some lessons from officials who were in the State Department and differed with the Obama administration over U.S. support for Saudi Arabia against Yemen. Many of the current senior folks in the administration, whether it was Tony Blinken, uh, USAID Administrator Samantha Power, Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer, they all signed a remarkable letter during the Trump administration in 2018, whereby they acknowledged that when they were in the Obama administration, the policies toward uh, the Yemen conflict and the unconditional support to the Saudi-led coalition ended up costing a lot of Yemeni lives. There was a lot of civilian casualties, decimation of infrastructure, and we're seeing the same exact mistakes happening right now in Gaza, carried out by folks who were part of that letter and part of the Obama administration policy. So it's really perplexing. Based on your experience at the State Department, how much is Middle East policy steered by electoral concerns? When I was at the State Department, I really did not see a lot of that. Now, I'm also aware that when you are the president of the United States, you are worried about re-election. And so that is always a consideration. Uh, but the actual deliberation in places like the State Department or the National Security Council is led by professionals who are not thinking about the domestic peace. But that is the job of the campaigns and the political advisors of the president. They're absolutely concerned. And they're always looking for trade-offs and 
and doing their own risk analysis. And the point for what happened in Michigan was to sent to the campaign and the political advisors a very clear signal that there will be consequences for these policies, that it's not enough to just placate us. It's not just enough to meet with us. We need to see actions that our votes matter, and we need you to listen to us now before it's too late in November. Well, El Zayat, who is CEO of Engage and a former U.S. State Department official, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And now it's time for sports. College hoops, Caitlin Clark, going pro. Should celebrating fans just, you know, like stay in their seats? And top NFL prospects show their stuff. ESPN's Michelle Steele joins us. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. Caitlin Clark. Iowa Hawkeyes says she's mm. going to forgo her final year of eligibility in college. She's going to declare for the WNBA draft, plays her final college home game tomorrow against Ohio State. Not that I can afford to go. Uh, <laughs> it's a poignant day, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is the talk of Iowa City, Scott, and she's a household name, so it's a big national story. If you want to see her final regular season home game in Iowa, You are going to have to shell out here. I just checked this morning. The get-in price is $417. That's going to be the most expensive price ever for a women's game in college or the pros. And here's why. Uh, You might see history. She's the top scorer in women's basketball. She holds a single-season record for threes, and she's only 18 points away from Pistol Pete Maravich's all-time NCAA scoring mark. Yeah. But... If you can't get into the game tomorrow night, you won't have to drive too far. At least Iowa fans won't have to to see her in the WNBA, likely going to the Indiana Fever next season as they hold the top pick in the draft. Uh, I have to ask you about uh, another college basketball controversy. Uh, Injuries are piling up because of of court storming. Uh, Caitlin Clark, in fact, collided with an Ohio State fan. Kyle Filipowski of Duke got hurt. Wave of fans rushed down to the court in celebration. I mean, what do we need? Baby seats for fans? Just strap them in? What? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah seatbelts, maybe. You think court storming will be over? You know, no. Uh, a lot of people feel court storming is just part of the game, but you're right. A lot of these players are getting injured. Not a lot, but a few prominent players are getting injured. And some real big-time college coaches are calling for bans on court storming, including Duke's John yeah. Shire and Bill Self from Kansas uh, as well. You know, Bill Self says he tries to prep his players if fans might run onto the court by having them, you know, hover near the sideline at the end of games. There's one athletics director here, Alabama's Greg Bird. Scott, he thinks teams should have to forfeit the game if their fans storm the court. Uh. I really don't see that happening. But... Clearly having a plan in place is something that more schools and conferences are going to be preparing for as we wind down the regular season here in college. NFL scouting combine is underway. Uh, Best players are going to spend the weekend being poked, prodded, measured, interviewed by NFL teams. The Chicago Bears have the first pick. And boy, they really need it. (laughs) I'd I'd say they haven't had a franchise quarterback since Sid Luckman, Scott. And it's been, I'm doing the math quickly. I think 90 years. Well, some of us hold a torch for, you know, Jim McMahon. But I know what you mean. Yeah, Uh, he was a lot of fun. So you think Caleb Williams, the Heisman winner? 
well, he he was the big headliner at the Combine this week for sure. Reporters jostling to get a question with him. He's a quarterback from USC. And the consensus here is that the Bears are going to pick Caleb Williams with that number one overall pick and trade their current starter, Justin Fields. He told ESPN, Scott, that he'd be very excited about playing in Chicago and that he loves deep dish pizza. Well, That's a direct I, quote. He's playing to the home team there. Uh, Chicago dogs too. However, let's say 46 year old showed some promise too, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, there's not many things that you can ding Tom Brady about, but he actually beat his 40 yard dash time. He was very slow with the combine in the year 2000, and he beat that time this week. All right, Pretty good thank, for him. Thanks very much, Michelle Steele of ESPN. Talk to you soon. Yep. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Cyberbullying, disinformation, fraud. We all know social media has its downsides, but happily the story you're about to hear isn't about that. In Anchorage, a local Facebook group has brought together Alaskans in common cause. It's a group for finding things, anything, a plumber, a hedgehog, the owner of the boots who accidentally took home from the skating rink, for someone to write theme music like B.J. Lederman writes ours. As Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin reports, the group's users tend to find all of these things, along with a nicer view of humanity. The group is called Find All of the Things, a play on words stemming from one woman's quest for gourmet olives. It's where Ella Eid turned when her French exchange student was homesick. She was turning 16, and she gave me her birthday list, and on her list was a real French croissant. Group members came through with Anchorage Bakery recommendations. That's what Eid expected. But then the magic happened. A flight attendant named Tiffany, who happened to be in Paris at that very time, posted, I'm in Paris. I'll bring you some French croissants. And I thought, are you kidding me? That's amazing. They met at a gas station for the handoff. Eid says she tried to pay, but Tiffany wouldn't take any compensation. That kind of serendipity and generosity is what users love about Find All of the Things. The group has over 19,000 members, so it has reach in a city as small as Anchorage. Collectively, they've located alligator meat and divorce lawyers. They've advised on home exorcism, frozen pipes, and waxing where the sun don't shine. The co-administrator of the group, Janelle Abad, is a stylist at a hair salon. She says her number one rule for find all of the things is to be kind. It is a safe space. I don't want anyone to come in and make fun of you or give you a hard time for this or just be sarcastic for a random comment. Like, people don't have time for that. Abad loves that the group helps local businesses and artisans. Another plus? the peek it provides into other people's lives. For instance, in December, a woman named Danny Foss posted that she was looking for a whole frozen jellyfish. Turns out she's an artist who specializes in pet preservation and curiosities of nature. She works out of a studio in her home. Hey. Come on in. Inside, shelves and drawers brim with dried flowers and animal parts. I don't know if you're getting what's in those jars, but there's little seahorses and there's dehydrated mice. <laughs> Foss reaches for a liquid-filled orb. 
it's like a snow globe, but with an unborn beaver floating inside. She says she wants to do the same with a jellyfish, but the Facebook group was stumped. No fruitful leads. Still, Foss's love for Find All of the Things is undiminished. She knows her genre isn't everyone's idea of art, but she appreciates that she doesn't feel judged by the group. Watching people come together on that page honestly like reaffirms my faith in humanity that we're all actually good people. That's how these Alaska Facebook users find joy, making the big world small, one random quest at a time. For NPR News, I'm Liz Ruskin in Anchorage. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A few travel disruptions might affect your journeys in and around Boston this weekend. If your plans include driving to downtown or 93 North from Logan Airport or elsewhere in East Boston, you might want to build in extra time. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through Monday morning while crews work on the tunnel's restoration. Detours are in place. On the MBTA, shuttle buses are replacing trains on the red line between Park Street and JFK UMass this weekend. This allows workers to do tunnel inspections. The commuter rail is free between JFK UMass and South Station this weekend. Shuttle buses also are replacing commuter rail service between South Station and Framingham today, and parts of the Green Line remain closed until Friday. A new season begins in about 20 minutes in South Boston. In a highly anticipated sign of spring, Sullivan's on Castle Island opens its doors at 10 a.m. The South Boston Culinary Institution is known for its hot dogs, seafood, and other treats. Sully's has been in business since 1951, operated by the same family for generations. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, Maestro Raphael Pichon leads a fresh take on Beethoven's 9th, March 15th and 16th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Ice climbing. It's as cold, technical, and dangerous as it sounds, but one group of disabled climbers is undaunted by those challenges. If I need to figure out how to get your tool onto your arm that doesn't have full function, we'll figure that out. If they're in a chair, we'll figure out how they can use their arms more. I'm Scott Detrow, and that's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Raquel Toro was working on her summer fellowship at the prestigious Rhode Island School of Design, doing her thesis on the famed minimalist sculptor Jack Martin, who's rich, well-born, and well-regarded. But something is stirred within her as she learns what her professors don't teach about Jack Martin, 
the death decades earlier of his wife, the land and body artist Anita DeMonte, after a tragic and spectacular 33-story fall from the couple's Manhattan apartment. Did Anita DeMonte slip through a window, or was it something else? And was her art overlooked in the shadow of her husband's? Anita DeMonte Laughs Last is the latest novel from Sochil Gonzalez, staff writer for The Atlantic, whose previous best-selling novel was Olga Dies Dreaming. She joins us from Brooklyn. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to hear the book discussed that way. It's like it gave me a little chill. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, well, <laughs> good. It gave me a chill reading it. What does Raquel Toro see in the story of Anita DeMonte? You know, I think she sees what she hadn't found herself while at Brown, which is where she's at school. Raquel has been trying to navigate a way of how does she show up and be Raquel from Brooklyn while trying to seemingly please people that don't understand what that means. And I think in Anita's art, she's like, this woman was totally herself. Something about it feels raw and primal and unapologetic and not trying to squeeze itself into what the Western canon was in the moment. And it gives her some kind of confidence to like kind of assert her own self and be more fully her. And I have to ask, how much um, is your novel inspired by the uh, the life, and for that matter, the death of a real life artist? Oh, I mean, this is an homage, I think, to Anna Mendieta. Um, and it was sort of inspired by my own story of discovering her towards the end of my senior year at Brown after being a very devoted and obsessed art history student. I rarely stumbled upon women, let alone Latinas like myself. So when I connected with Ana Mendieta's art, it stirred kind of an awakening in me. And this book was um, almost an alternative history of what would have happened for me, um, you know, a version of me had I encountered her maybe a little bit sooner. We should explain that uh, Anna Mendieta uh, died in September 1985 in a fall from a 34th floor apartment, if I'm not mistaken. And she uh, yes. she was married to the minimalist sculptor Carl Andre, who was acquitted of her murder. Yes, he was acquitted of her murder. But I think there were a lot of people that were dubious about the circumstances of that. But I think what was beautiful in fiction was that I took the biography and I used that as a base, but then I had the ability to then kind of make Anita DeMonte this repository because she, she writes it from the afterlife, right? And it's written from her point of view. And I was able to kind of give this character all of the sense of frustrations that I myself have experienced as an artist and trying to like make art about Latino people and that people kind of connect with. And then I also was able to allow her to have agency and, and give her voice and not just have the story end with death, you know, to say like, that isn't actually the end. And now what you felt about your legacy as it continues and that that maybe even what you thought was the end of the legacy isn't the end of the legacy. Mm. Let me ask you about Jack Martin. Yeah. He's a scoundrel and maybe worse than a scoundrel. Yeah. Can he also be appreciated as a talented artist? A hundred percent. I think there's a part that I, I was really explicit, you know, when Raquel sort of figures out what he's suspected of doing and confronts her professor about why they don't talk about it. He's like, well, what should I do? Not teach every artist that fights with their wife, you know? And she was like, absolutely not. You know, I think the idea is 
let me take in the full person. Like if, if we're being told that this person's psychology or that person's psychology or background inform their art, let me understand this so I can look at it with my own eyes. But I think he is talented. And I think there's absolutely a part where, you know, you're sort of hearing why this professor was so obsessed with his work. And it speaks to what the power of it was. Like he was like in a time of tumult in society, he saw a way to strip away persona and make art about something else and make you just sit in space differently. And so I think that two things can absolutely be true, particularly with artists. And um, I thought that was one of the things that was interesting to be able to kind of take on, which is like, how do we not throw the baby out with the bathwater to some extent? Earlier in the novel, Anita DeMonte says, somewhere along the way, I lost my rigor, stopped working, stopped dreaming. Yeah. And then, just as I'm getting used to that, she says, it can feel so important to matter to someone. Yeah. I found that so moving. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, that's where we're all vulnerable, isn't it? Yeah. And I think she becomes really obsessed with success, right? And mattering. I think she was so worried about being overshadowed by her partner, Jack Martin, that she really becomes very focused and determined. But then in that, she's like, there was so much isolation in that. You know, I think I wanted her to have this very human feeling of why it wasn't so simple to just leave this husband who's like cheats on her and is kind of obnoxious. Like it wasn't so simple because she did know at the end of the day, she really mattered to him. And that made her feel, she says, she's like, that gave me the feeling of a life. You know, she's really talking to the reader, right? And that honesty, that moment of honesty, I felt was kind of beautiful because I think we have so much judgment for women and men that stay in sort of dysfunctional relationships. And sometimes it's actually as simple as that. We all just want to matter to somebody. You um, you note in your acknowledgments, um, so many spirits and ghosts running through this book. So something as personal as a novel is also a collaborative art, isn't it? Even if there is the, the one name on the cover. Oh my gosh. So collaborative. I mean, just the entire origin of this. I was working on an adaptation of Olga Dies Dreaming, trying to make turn that into a television show. And my producing partner sent me a joke and he was like, art and commerce, what can you do? And the next thing you know, it reminded me of an art history textbook title. And then I found myself remembering my time in an art history classroom. And then I wrote a whole little outline and I texted him 20 minutes later and I was like, I think I know what my next book's going to be. So even the very moment of inspiration really is a collaborative process, right? And most definitely the spirit of Anna Mendieta, the spirit of a college friend that passed away far too young, just revisiting that time of my younger self in some funny way and that era of being a young woman in the 90s when we're sort of like, we don't quite know what is feminism, what is the ambition like for a woman now, what are all these things? Like that felt almost like a spirit of a forgotten me. <laughs> so, you know, it was really, really, truly, there are spirits all over this book. Suchila Gonzalez, her new novel, Anita DeMonte Laughs Last. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is lovely. Jamie and Marion go on a road trip. Suddenly, Philly to Tallahassee. But they get the wrong car, they blow a tire, they find a couple of cases in the trunk that they shouldn't. Highly motivated criminal professionals try to track them down on a road trip that 
detours between cheap motels, love nests, diners, lesbian bars, a high-end resort, a dog track, and a night in jail. Drive Away Dolls is the first narrative film, solo directed by Ethan Cohen. He wrote it with his wife, Trisha Cook. Ethan Cohen and Trisha Cook join us now from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thank you both very much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, I should say, um, solo directed by me, in name, but kind of in fact, directed by me and Trish. We wrote the movie together and made it together. Well, that that's wonderful to know. And I gather it grows out of an idea that you both have had since the early 2000s. Is that correct? Yes. I came up with the title, which was Drive Away Dykes. And uh, he was like, oh, that's a great title. We should write that movie. So we started writing it uh, around 2002 and uh, then tried to get it made. And then fortunately, weren't able to do it then. Yeah, the title Driveway Dykes really got us going, got us, you know, writing a script and making the movie. And sadly, it's the uh, proverbial ladder we had to kick away. We don't have the title anymore as Driveway Dolls. Well, why do you say you couldn't keep it? Can't, I mean, you can, you're famous filmmakers. Can't you do more or less anything? <laughs> I am a famous filmmaker. Is that the funniest Damn. question anyone's ever asked you? <laughs> it probably is. You know what? I will accept the premise. They're just kind of commercial realities. Basically, you can't do it. And where's the idea from the story come from? A driveway company is, you know, you go and you pick up a car, someone needs a car taken, and you can go in and drive a car across the country or down to Florida or whatever, which I had done in, when I was in college. And we thought, oh, well, that's a good premise for a story. You know, it's like someone gets a car and something in a trunk that they're not aware of. And it was very important for us, for me in particular, to make a queer movie, to make a lesbian movie that was more about just kind of the plot and less about the two characters' sexual identity. Matt Damon is one of the many uh, famous actors who uh, who pop up in the film. And there's also a a kid in there. Can I call him a kid who looks like a young Matt Damon? I won't set up everything, but how, I mean, how did you set out a casting call all over the world, we're looking for someone who looks like they could have been Matt Damon when he was 11? No, we didn't, because when would that ever work? So we talked about de-aging and all the hateful digital solutions to the problem of, you know, making a young Matt Damon. But then a couple of weeks before we started shooting, Bob Graff, a producer of the movie, was golfing, and his caddy asked him if there was anything he could do on the movie. He said, everybody tells me I look like Matt Damon. And you had your Matt Damon. <laughs> he was Matt Damon. Yeah. He, you know, you should see, well, you have seen the movie. He withstands all scrutiny. You look at him and you go, okay, that's young Matt Damon. Ethan Cohen, you notably said in 2018 you were getting bored by the film business. I said that privately. Who is listening? Yeah, I actually kind of was. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so what brought back your interest? Well, I got bored, basically. Um, it's, it's actually kind of that simple. But, you know, we were sitting at home in New York during the lockdown, and a friend of ours brought us a movie that um, a documentary proposed that Trish and I make, a, a documentary about Jerry Lee Lewis, the musician. Uh, so we did that, and that was really stimulating. We, I really enjoyed it. 
since we so much enjoyed making the movie, we thought, well, okay, we'll make another one. Let me ask you about um, sequence in the film. Jamie and Marion unexpectedly opened the trunk. And let's just say I was expecting there to be a lot of money in the silver attache case. Um, let's just uh. say it's something else, okay? Now, do, does does this come about? I, I just imagine the two of you looking at one another and saying, what's the most outrageous thing we can put in there? <laughs> You set a bar for yourself if you got a mysterious case in the trunk and it's got to be important stuff that's motivating a lot of activity and pursued by criminals and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, you got to think of something interesting. Money isn't that interesting. Money's always in the case. So we settled the problem to our satisfaction and you didn't mention how and we can't either. That oh, would be a spoiler. I, yeah, I, I... Uh, I, actually, I'm not even sure I can mention how you settled it on the air. <laughs> this is NPR, after all. A case that inspired us was the case in Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, and, you know, I'm not even sure ultimately what was in that case. Um, but we wanted it to be something big. and nuclear or something. Um, we wanted it to be something dramatic and big and like, whoa, okay, that's what's in the case. May I ask you how you work together? Uh, we work, well, much as I did with uh, Joel, my brother, I, we just sit in a room and talk the script back and forth as we're writing it, and then proceed to sit on the set together and talk the scenes back and forth with the actors and with everyone else. And it's just a long, months-long conversation. Uh, and we're pretty good communicators. We, Because we've been in a relationship and have known each other for over 30 years, we have an easy way of communicating with each other, which makes it easy, certainly easy when we're writing, but easy on set as well. And in the cutting room, you know, it's, we're very, you know, just comfortable and understand the way each other thinks most of the time. You're on to another film already, I gather? Yeah, we're prepping. We, we start shooting in about a month, uh, another movie with Margaret Qualley, actually. Um, uh, kind of a crime thing, private detective story man not not a comedy really it's a kind of more of a noir not a comedy but you're always allowed to laugh if you're inclined to mm. sounds like making films is fun for you again oh yeah it's great i mean you know well always on good days it's great on frustrating days and um, not so great but yeah it's stimulating it's great it's good fun yeah it, it was it was certainly a lot of laughs making drive away dykes that was a lot of fun for us and this new movie has been fun for us as well and it's a pretty new new process for me um so i'm having a blast and it's really fun to be able to work with ethan and so many of the crew members that have worked with ethan and joel over the years you know i mean it's just like being surrounded by so many talented people is it's really inspiring to come to work every day Ethan Cohen and uh, Trisha Cook, their new film. Well, it's called Drive Away Dolls, but you have another title, don't you? <laughs> we sure do. In our hearts. <laughs> well, thanks so much, both of you, for being with us. Thank you. Uh, thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. This is NPR. Thanks for spending your weekend with 90.9 WBUR and for listening throughout the week. We bring you the latest news at the start of the hour. And Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. WBUR supporters include Boston Gay Men's Chorus, presenting Melodies for a Movement, honoring Tyler Clemente's life, with Anne Hampton Calloway performing March 16th, bgmc.org, and Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall. bgsp.edu. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Hari Kondabolu offered everyone a way to make a little extra cash. I'd pay $6 a finger. I'm Peter Sagal. You'd need not sacrifice any extremities to enjoy this week's show from Austin, Texas with rapper Danny Brown. Join us for a show with all of its fingers and toes. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.